Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. It's great to be joined by Raman Gray, the Artistic Director of Actors Touring Company and Director as well. Raman, thank you for coming in. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really interested in you growing up because it seemed to happen all over the place. It was in Oxford and Tehran and New York and Paris. Was it as... You, you look surprised. I've done my research. You have done your research, <laughs> yes. Was it as creative as it was international, your your childhood? Well, all those things happened when I was quite young. Well, it happened actually throughout my... my I mean, it was to do with my parents. Mm. I mean, obviously, they were moving around. I didn't have much choice in that. But it meant that I had a very, I suppose, rootless life. I mean, I, I think I must have been to about 11 or 12 different schools. So, And I think that... You know, sometimes you read those interviews with people actors and it turns out their father was in the army or something and that rootless thing is sometimes maybe quite a common feeder into a life in the theatre because the theatre provides you with a quick fix of rooting every time you start a show you sort of create a little family a little root a little place so maybe there's maybe that's been the so you so theatre was was the route for you growing up well, very early on, I was very, very interested in theatre, really, from a very early age. But uh, I think that I'm just sort of cheap psychology saying perhaps the reason I've stayed in it is 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 that experience of constantly being uprooted, maybe. Who knows? And which of those places did you do you feel was your home the most? Which one of those places do you have a strongest affinity with? Well, you know, I was in Tehran for two years between the ages of six and eight, and I have very vivid memories of it but I wouldn't describe it as home. Um, Paris, I was like 15 or something. I was there for a year, which was a really important year, you know, because puberty and cigarettes and um, <laughs> shoplifting and experiences like that, the t- teenage experiences have really marked me, uh, you know, in, uh, were fused together with that city. Um, uh, so I don't know that I'd call any of them particularly home. I suppose Oxford is mainly my home because that's where I'd always come back to because my father was teaching at the university there and we grew up in Oxford and so that's sort of, my, that was the base. Well, the Oxford's a lot quieter than Paris and New York to grow up in. I, it is, I'd but guess. it's a perfect place to grow up in and actually it's it's unlike Cambridge because you've got, that you had the, uh, out in Cowley you had the, the, the British Leyland car works. It's not just the ivory towers, so you can you you there you know it's a proper I mean it's a place it's a city that has everything, it's got um, it's it's actually very diverse, and um, but compact enough that you can run around and feel that you're you know when you're growing up that you're in a big city and there's theatres and pubs and clubs and you know all the rest of it. So was it quite an academic um, childhood and upbringing as well? Then, if your dad taught at the university. Well, yeah, I grew up in an academic environment, yes. And uh, this is very, uh, you're really good. I, I thought we were going to talk about, you're talking about me. <laughs> I didn't know that was on the card. Tell me about but, your next record. But, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, well, I suppose it was. Yes, it was. It was. I mean, my father wasn't, uh, he was, he didn't do any sort of uh, helping with the homework or anything like that in particular. I mean, you could engage him in conversation about anything. He was um, a neuroscientist. But, uh, you know, he did, he, um, yeah, he did his thing. And have any of those cities, do you think, influenced your work as a director? Do any of them have a certain flavour of those places? Um, I have never thought about that. It's a remarkably good question. (laughs) I think, 
I mean, I then went and lived in Cairo for a year when I was doing uh, when I was at university, and um, I've lived I've lived in lots of European cities for like, considerable amounts of time, and I think experiencing theatre in all those cities has affected my work. I think that is true. So I've I've, I've seen a lot of international theatre, not just as someone flying in and checking out the show and flying back, but actually just living in a city. Um, which is the privilege of the job. Like, since if you go and do a show in Moscow and you're there for two months or three months, you start to have a different relationship to the city and um, you see theatre in its context. And that is, I think, a really crucial thing about theatre. I've learned, I feel that theatre is a profoundly local event. Mm. And um, so I suppose then if I did a Russian play or a German play or a Spanish play or whatever, you would, I think... I think I think a lot about the audience or the the people who would receive that play and how they would receive it as much as you know the play that is written down that's really interesting then so would you say that a play would be different depending on where the audience comes from absolutely yeah yeah and of course you know I now run this company actors touring company and we experience that every night in different cities and you know um, although you know, you could walk down a high street in Belfast or Newcastle and it looks pretty much the same. The wonderful thing is when you go to the theatre in Newcastle or Belfast, it's a very, very different experience. And the people who come in respond, they, you know, they just behave very differently. They laugh at different things. They fidget at different points. They, um, yeah, I think it's very different wherever you go. And those are the things that theatre does best and those are the things that we have to hold on to in this sort of corporatized, globalized, <laughs> bland. It gets blander and blander, the surface of the world, the corporate surface of the world. And one of the things that theatre does is completely puncture that and show you the thing underneath. Well, I suppose what something that 2016 has shown us is that it certainly wasn't bland. And we've got these That's extreme true. political <laughs> true, um, yeah. situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah. You as a director, is that something that you want to get your teeth stuck into? Or do you need to sort of sit and pause and think, actually, hang on a second, it's going to be in a few years' time before we can really process this? Well, uh, absolutely. It's going to be a long time till we can process the fallout on Brexit or Trump. I mean, we're processing as we go. And with at the risk of sounding uh, vain, I'd also like to say that actually it's not just me. I think it's all of us, particularly in the theatre, is that the plays have been pushing at this already. So, for example, we did a play that was here called The Events about three or four years ago that was primarily about what happens when one group of people meets another group. What happen, What do you do about multiculturalism and integration and diversity, which is... Um, you know, because in that play, someone takes a gun and starts shooting um, the people who are trying to create a more integrated world, and the, that play was incredibly resonant and um, powerful wherever we played it. And in particular, one scene where there was a right-wing politician who was expressing quite um, powerful views around the idea of unity of one tribe of not opening up and I think looking back on it you know um, the reason that was that had the valency that it had was it was already the the, the wave that's ri rising towards Brexit and Trump was there and uh, so I think theatre is often like the canary in the coal mine 
you know, if it's good theatre, you are ahead of the curve in in some ways. Um, I'm just about to start directing a play at the Orange Tree called Winter Solstice, a German play, which is basically it's a Christmas play, it's a family play in which a figure like Donald Trump or Adolf Hitler, in fact, comes back for Christmas. And that's a play that was written two, three years ago by a German writer who was, you know, aware of things that are happening in Germany, the resurgence of the right. And so, yeah, theatre is, you know, there's an aspect to theatre where people start becoming very journalistic and they say, oh, let's go and do a play about Brexit. Let's go out and find out what's happened mm. now, the fallout. But the really good theatre was already pointing at it. And I think, uh, yeah, a lot of the plays that I have have been turning to, for example, The Suppliant Women, this Greek play, is about, it's the oldest play on the planet, but it's about 50 women crossing the Mediterranean, seeking asylum in Europe. And, uh, you know, Aeschylus didn't know about the migrant crisis of 2015. But on the other hand, of course he knew about it because it's one of those recurring, deep, sort of mythic interactions that happen on a sort of continual cycle. So theatre is telling you profound news. It's not giving you the sort of the, the frothy scum that you can read on The Guardian or the BBC <laughs> or the, you know, you know that, that type of thing. It's giving you real information about the world. Is there a risk, though, that, that it is telling those stories but within an echo chamber? How, do, how does theatre break out and reach audiences who clearly feel um, let down or, or let, left out of um, society? If you look at people that voted Brexit because they were angry, people that voted for Trump because they were angry, or even people that vote for Jeremy Corbyn because they want something different, how do we reach out um, in the theatre to encompass everybody within society? Is that possible? That's a really good question again. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to do that. I mean, I think the ambition in your question is admirable and the reality is much, much harder. I mean, before we started this interview, you asked me who I support, which football team I support, and I don't support any football team. And I, I always find it interesting to think about football because I'm not sure they have the same... Do they have the same arguments? Do they say we need a more diverse audience? Why aren't the intellectuals with glasses? <laughs> or people like me? Why, why haven't I been engaged by it? What, when did Arsenal football team ever reach out to me and send me a special offer to say, please come and watch the football match? They never did. And why does theatre feel that we have to include absolutely everybody? I mean, one of the reasons is that we're publicly funded mm. so that we feel an obligation to spend the tax money fairly and the Arsenal football team isn't funded not by direct taxation it's it's funded by all sorts of other other ways you know uh, i advertising things that i have to go through i i have to sit and watch ads or you know my my eyesight has to be polluted by by adverts <laughs> to fund Arsenal football team right and other football right? teams as well That's and other football teams as well and other football teams as well right um, so i have to suffer it without any, it gives me nothing in return. Um, but, uh, you know, in the theatre, we tend to be rather good-hearted people and we, we take our responsibilities seriously. I mean, I don't know. I read an article the other week, Lynn Gardner, I think it was, saying about, um, you know, we've got to reach out more, as if the people who are not... As if Brexit is because we didn't engage the difficult-to-reach 
you know, students, young people, etc., etc., etc. I mean, I think the theatre has, to be honest, done a fantastic job of inclusion of cheap theatre. Te- you know, finding ways of bringing people in. And I say that having worked in, say, Germany or Austria or you know, France, etc., where the arrogance and the the um, the disconnect between mm. theatres and their communities is it's just unbelievable even though they get way more money than us they do nothing or very little in terms of inclusion so this country mm. is particularly good at that right but the people who voted brexit or you know the the, the people out, out outside london outside the metropolitan areas uh it's a really difficult question. Do they want to come and see shows that are diverse and inclusive, the shows that are about poor people, shows that are, you know, do they? They probably don't. They probably do want to go down to see Book of Mormon or take in a West End show or whatever. And that's not, to be honest, what we are setting out to do in theatres like The Young Vic or, you know, my theatre company. We may, every now and then, make shows like that that, catapult into the West End or into broad, on Broadway. But they are the exceptions rather than the rule. Um, I don't know the answer to your question. I think it's a very good question and I applaud the spirit behind your question. Um, and I flip-flop and sometimes I think, yeah, I would like to have lots of people who voted Brexit coming to see my shows. I would like anyone to see my shows, see my work and engage with it. And then I think about football and I think, Maybe we should just neglect all those people, <laughs> like I've been neglected. Roman, we're getting ahead of ourselves slightly because um, I want to ask you about the late 80s, early 90s, when you were the recipient of the Regional Theatre Young Directors Scheme and right. you were dispatched or sent or went to the Liverpool Playhouse yeah. and cutting your teeth there, what you learned and what it was like to be a director in Liverpool back mm. then. Because a really interesting time politically as well with sort of the, the dying embers of Thatcherism and, and the major government as well. Yeah, indeed. I remember the day that she... Did she resign? Was she, she did mm. resign. She did resign. She resigned or she was pushed anyway, whatever. But I remember getting the news and I was late for rehearsal and I remember running down Matthew Street in the rehearsal rooms opposite where the Cavern Club used to be and running four flights up the stairs. And I just, I felt like a, a messenger in a Greek tragedy because I had a fantastic piece of information. And, and I ran into the rest of my, I threw the door open and I was panting. And I just held it for a moment and I went, Thatcher's gone. And then the room just erupted. <laughs> and it was one of those, it was an electric, electric moment. But actually, you say that was 1990. And actually Liverpool had, um, you know, we, we'd had the Toxteth riots and it was this incredibly deprived city. I mean, you know, it's such a long time ago now. It's like 25, 30 years, something like that. I don't know. It's a, another world, 1989, 1990, 91. It's a long time ago, 25 years. Mm. And um, I had had this incredibly sheltered, privileged upbringing you know, Oxford, as you say, New York, Paris, <laughs> London. Um, and uh, it was a real shock to me, real, um, you know, in, in many, many ways. Um, Has that informed your work as a director then? Your time you know, I did, I did a similar thing that when I left the Royal Court and started and went to Actors Touring Company, I, 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 I tried to behave the same way in Liverpool as I would behave anywhere else. So one of the first things I did when I got there is I did a production of Spring Awakening with the Youth Theatre. 
by Franz Wedekind, and we found this abandoned church in Toxteth that had been burnt out in the riots, and all around it was a complete wasteland. And I took the youth theatre, and we went in there, we made a site-specific performance in there. And um, I remember one day being attacked by a bunch of um, young men uh, outside the theatre, outside the church, and I think I went up to them and said something in my posh accent, like now now stop stop this and I didn't even see the guy's fist and the next thing I was flat out on the ground and then I could just see their feet and I thought they were going to kick me in the face and my glasses and I you know and I, I was very I was very very green very naive very you know walking in there speaking in this accent doing those those plays and it got very rough and they they, they were going to then we became very frightened about leaving any equipment because the church kept being attacked, people trying to nick all the lights. And other. So in the end, me and the designer, we ended up sleeping in the church overnight to protect all, all the stuff. It was, it, you know, I was totally naive, but that was a very profound meeting for me with um, the people of Liverpool 8, really, of, of where, where, to where, 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 where Toxteth is. And... Uh, yeah, and then the other thing that happened while I was there is that the theatre went bankrupt, went into administration, and Bill Kenwright took over as artistic director. And that was, looking back on it, a hugely important moment because there was a th publicly subsidised theatre that was now being run by a commercial producer who put on Blood Brothers and, um, you know, whatever it is, Shirley Valentine and all these things. And actually, to give him his credit, he saved the theatre and he kept it running and it's still there today. But the politics of it was... Uh, you know, very powerful because a lot of people had to be made redundant and, uh, you know, I'd come from this ivory tower and suddenly you're plunged into the world of, you know, unions and workers and management and all this and, and it was all very, uh, you know, very real and a real, uh, yeah, proper education Did that me. politicise you or your work or do you feel that you were already politicised? Well, I think I'd always been. I mean, I, I, I read Brecht on Theatre by John Willett when I was uh, 13 or 14 and um, so I'd always been obsessed with, with Brecht and with um, communism and you know all that stuff. So I, I had that uh, perspective. At the same time, I knew there wasn't any world in which, with any sincerity, I could call myself a worker or adopt <laughs> a working-class accent or pretend any of those things. So I had a curious thing where, I, 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 you know, I couldn't, I couldn't really join in. I wasn't going to be hypocritical in that way and like, oh, like, yeah, right, well, all that stuff. Um, but my sympathies, instinctively, and my aesthetics were on on that side of the fence. Um, but I, I find it very hard. You asked me, I, I thought we were going to talk about Mark Locke here and living with the lights on. You're grilling me about, about me. We can, we can get to it. We will, I promise. I right, promise. okay, okay. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about then, you're here at the Young Vic. Yes, um, yes. For living with the lights on, yes. which opens on the 7th of December. Yes, please book your tickets. <laughs> but that is, uh, well, tell us about that show, actually. Well, I'd done a show with Mark Locke here about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago at the Royal Court Theatre. And um, he was brilliant in it. It was a brilliant show, The Ugly One by Maris von Meyenberg. He kept himself very much to himself. And there was something hidden, something dark about him. We got very well. He was really, really good in it. And then we it was a hit and it came back again. He didn't want to do it again. 
and then he sort of disappeared. He got married. I knew he got married, and then he disappeared. And he disappeared for about eight years, and I knew that he was ill. And and then I got a card from him last year saying I'm back, and um, I'm back. And by the way, you still owe me ten quid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I met him, and then I was doing an, another play by Maris von Meyenberg, and I cast him in it, and we did it, and he told me his whole story about um, having been ill, um, which was something a lot of people in the theatre know about. I hadn't actually ever come across it. Um, he'd been down at Stratford the first time he got ill. And um, then during the, the run of Marta, one day he said, I've got this thing, do you want to read it? And he gave me this monologue that he'd written, and he came, I said, I read it, I was completely taken with it, and he came and did a little performance for us in the office, and it was very, very moving, as well as being very funny and all the other things that it is. And so um, D- David Lann had kn- knew about it from before, had seen it before, etc. And And Mark is now um, in a place where he is recovered or, you know, is functioning uh, in, in, a, in a really positive way so that he can deliver this really naked stories very very unsparing about himself mm. is very honest about himself and actually what it's like just to go completely off the rails and I find it I've never gone off the rails like that but I find myself in it at so many points throughout I think yes that could be me or I could I, you know I can imagine doing being getting to that point where you do these things and um, so it, it's much more extreme, but it, it, it's, it's expanding for an audience, or for me anyway. And uh, uh, so I'm really thrilled that David and Lucy think it's, you know, uh, worth putting on for three weeks here, which I'm sure it will be, because audiences have a, have a... The thing is, you're in the room with the actor, and there's, you know, it's called the Actors Touring Company, I suppose that's how it works for me. He is an actor. The story begins with his life as an actor and it spirals from there into madness. And I am fascinated with the way actors are able to channel um, the spirit world. And, the you know, it's very often you're doing a play. Say it's a play in which there's a scene of, you know, it's about massive conflict. And you are guaranteed that massive conflict will erupt in the rehearsal room at some point because you can't, it sounds a bit wanky, but it is true. It's happened so many times that I know that if you touch these things, they just come alive and they infect and they spread. And so there is a there is a black magic or magic around what the actor does. And uh, I find it at its most exciting when I'm able to see the actor in as naked and mm. and unvarnished a state as possible. And if there's one thing about my aesthetic that I'm aware of is that I love more and more to see less and less gubbins. There's no lighting, no smoke, no underscoring, no stupid costumes, <laughs> no makeup, no. Just see the person, the human being, as unmediated as possible in as powerful a relationship with the audience. And that that's really important to me. And I think Mark totally um, connects to an audience. He just like, vroomph. And so you you really get that. And the other thing is when we did it first, we went and toured it around hospitals and we played it for psychiatrists and people in halfway houses and played it in lots of, um, you know, me- medical settings, which, which is, you know, going back to the point about different audiences, very different reactions and responses. 
and um, that is absolutely fascinating because, of course, theatre is all about that, the meeting of... And I hope this isn't a spoiler, but when the audience come to Living With The Lights On, they uh, they get a cup of tea and a, yeah. and a biscuit. What's the, what's the idea behind well, the that? Idea, actually, that just came out of when we did the, the, the events. We had an urn on stage, and we, get, we used to give the choir a cup of tea, etc. And I just thought... Yeah, some tea left so over. so nice. We had some tea <laughs> left over. We've got an urn. <laughs> Might as well use it. <laughs> Might as well use it. And this time we're throwing in hobnobs as well. And it, it just... I think it's part of the... As a director, you often think I think a lot about that the first how you how you knit the audience and the, the the production together at the beginning. So that thing of just stating that we're all here together in the same room, and a cup of tea and a biscuit does that. I mean, it immediately breaks any pretense. Mm. And then Mark just it's what he's written anyway. He just it just starts, and before you know it, you're in the middle of you're meeting the devil before you know it, and that's very arresting. And have you paid him back the £10? It was a joke. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I, want to <laughs> I want to talk about um, the events, which was on mm. uh, in 2014 here, which had a community chorus, mm. community choir, um, every night of the performance. Mm. And then um, Suppliant Women, which I saw um, at the Lyceum in Edinburgh uh, in October, also had a community chorus around it. Is that something which appeals to you then um, having real people in inverted commas in your shows well they are real people They're, you could take the inverted commas away <laughs> they're absolutely real and yes it does and actually in the events it came out of being on tour one night in Hull we were playing Crave by Sarah Kane and a new Russian play called Illusions by Ivan Viripayev I had four actors and two audience members turned up and it was one of the most depressing nights <laughs> I've had and um, uh, I thought there's got to be another way because you know when we sit in London just to go back to things like Brexit you know shows in London are habitually sold out theatres sell out a year in advance it's a nightmare as soon as you step outside London it's the opposite I mean it's crazy and you can take a five star show from here to somewhere else and it, it you know it's empty not empty but you can walk up and buy a ticket and so if if and if you're a touring company you know we're having a big argument with the arts council at the moment because although we're based in london the idea is you know we're supposed to tour theater to england there's english taxpayers who are paying you know for, for this and but it's also very very hard because you're going out there to smaller cities where there aren't competing theatres, there's not, the, you know, the, the cultural fire hasn't been stoked up like it has in London. So I thought there's got to be another way of including people or getting them in. And with David Gregg, we were doing some research to make the events. On the very first day, we happened to go, the dramaturg said her mother sang in a choir and we should go to a choir rehearsal in Oslo, actually. So we went and there was this amazing choir and just the experience of being with a bunch of people in a room doing something communal and collective felt very very good <laughs> i mean you recognize it because it's like that's what theater is so it was it, so then we spent it took me and and john brown it took me and john brown and david gregg it took us two years to work out actually how to construct a show where you could have a new choir every night because we couldn't tour mm. with a choir because it's too expensive and once that worked as you say, it was great to see the real people and to see them sort of like a mini audience experiencing the show for the first time, but also participating in it. So they're, you know, um, 
but I realised it was like a Greek play, and so then oh, I I set out on a search to find a Greek play that I could do in a similar way, because the part of me that is a theatre director, the boffiny bit, I think, and this is my vanity speaking here, that I want to be the one who solved the thing of how to do the chorus. Because every time I see Greek plays, I always think the chorus never works because you've always got professional actors doing it. And, you know, there's a gap between the chorus and the main parts and they it just never works for me. But also because they fall into naturalism and they try mm. to work out their psychological circumstances whatever it is I don't know what they're doing it doesn't work for me <laughs> and I'd done enough research to know that this thing had to be I wanted it to be sung and moved exactly like it was and of course chorus comes from the ancient Greek word the root of it is to do with dancing so chorus relates to choreography so singing actually comes it's a separate item and um, so the the challenge for Sasha Milovich Davis, the choreographer, and John Brown, the composer, was that everything must be moved and sung, or you know, heart, you know, in some way, constantly. And um, but also to do it with real people, to do it with young people, which is what the Greeks would have done. The only change we made is we took women instead of men. The, for the Greeks, it would have been an all-male experience, which I'd really like to do, by the way. As I'd love to do an all-male version of it. But um, I think that what that means is if you have a chorus of amateurs or whatever you want to call them, non-professionals, when a professional opens his mouth like Omar Ibrahim, you think, oh, yeah, that there's training, there's that, I can see there's a difference, and that person is a king. And you immediately understand they're a king, not because, because they literally got a whole different weight, experience, tone, everything, everything, everything. So... Uh, you understand something also about the social and political scale of those plays if you have the people and, you know, the kings up there. Um, and how do you find these people? Where do they come from? Well, all theatres have more or less outreach departments or you just put ads in the paper or you go to youth things or... I mean, you trawl around and you get a group and then they tell their friends and it sort of self-selects. But... Um, there are all sorts of people, university students, nurses, ushers, um, kids at school, um, unemployed people, gardeners. I mean, really, the whole range of people um, coming together. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing because they, the, the chorus in Sublime Women, didn't know each other at all. And after seven weeks, they're so bonded and you've, you've, you've really made a group which is a, a terrific thing. I guess it means there's a constant process of rehearsal going on, though, as well, if you're changing those those choruses for, for different performances and different theatres. Yeah, it was. So we so we made the show in Edinburgh and ran that for just over two weeks, then went to Belfast and had to... We met a new group who had been trained without us, with the local... You know, they had the music and the, 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 the movement, um, and then we had a week to knit them together with the with our company... Um, and then we had to it's exhausting yeah because then we had to go to Belf, uh, Newcastle and then do it all again so we're still working out how to do it but um, it is exhausting because you have to put that much more energy into pumping up a group of amateurs than you would professionals on the other hand the love and the reward <laughs> is you know much much more than you'll ever get from a group of professionals the, pay, the payoff is fantastic and, and I think also for audiences who sit there and 
even if they don't know the detail, they 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 can see that they're young people, real people, doing their best, and and that's very moving. Like when you go and see a school play, mm. it's often much more moving. You end up crying because you see, you know, the kids in primary school doing their best to be a donkey or whatever, whatever. Because because it's the effort that is important, not. You know, and there's a horrible word that has crept into theatre all over the place. It's not the not it's not the about the finished product. It's this word product, mm. which is such a horrible word that it should just you know it should be forbidden in the theatre. But it's not about that. It's about seeing the end result of effort, the process and the journey. As well. Yeah, absolutely, mm. the process and the journey. And I guess. Although this might be stating the obvious, it's a bit more authentic, isn't it? If you've got these people on on the stage, so they give a lend an authentic voice to these stories. They do, they do, and that's how it should be because the the subject of the play is about what happens when fifty women rock up on your city doorstep. So it's important that, the, as it were, the people of the city incarnate, inhabit, embody that problem. That's what I noticed when I saw Suppliant Women at the Lyceum actually that it's so incredible that this play written what two and a half thousand years ago is so incredibly urgent and topical about refugees about people showing up in a country fleeing war when you you read that play or you you decided to do that play you must have thought wow this this could have been written yesterday well I read it first maybe three years ago or four years ago it's took it's taken a long time actually and I read it in the Penguin Classics uh, translation, which is it's a very good translation. But it's it's it's. I mean, I could I, I got the story because there's not much story, but it's it's not an easy read. And I have to give credit to David Gregg because we then commissioned a literal translation, and he's kept very very close to Aeschylus. But David has a fantastic gift for making things limpid, accessible, and current. So it is absolutely, I mean, in the fourth line of the Aeschylus, they say, we are women of Egypt, neighbours of Syria. Syria <laughs> is there in line four, and it's there in line four of our version. So we haven't, y- you can argue that everything he's written is 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 there in the original. Um, but he is very, very good, David Gregg, is what I'd say. And you can try reading another translation and see if it jumps off the page in the same way. And I'm, I, I'll tell you, it won't. And would you? Are you keen to do more work with choruses and? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we, the, my secret, secret. I'm going to tell you now, mm. so you don't tell anyone. <laughs> right? This is totally top secret. Okay, just us two in the room. Just yeah. us two, right? Is the door shut? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So what I want to do is, mm. I want to recreate part two and part three, and then at the end there would have been a satyr play, which is like a comedy, of that trilogy so Supplement Women was part one of a trilogy like Oresteia mm. but parts two and three are lost but we know the story so my plan is to recreate part two and part three with David and John and then eventually at some point you can spend the whole see the whole trilogy mm. with the with the comedy play that'll be the, the tetralogy see the whole tetralogy in a day and then I shall that'll be my life's work Fantastic. Yeah. So when will that all be done by then? I don't know. I've got. To, I mean, that's my plan. Okay. So I need a. I need a theatre. Maybe, maybe someone's listening to this, <laughs> and I really need a theatre to uh, co-produce that okay. with. Okay. What about David Land? We should ask him, shouldn't we? You could do. Yeah. See if you can find him after this. All right. After this. <laughs> 
I've got a question though about uh, something women, which is, pardon my ignorance, I don't know huge amounts about ancient Greek plays, but right at the beginning, um, a member of the Scottish Parliament got on stage mm. before the show started. He picked up a bottle of red wine and he poured it on the floor. Yeah. And uh, what was all that about then? Well, that was some. I, I was reading a some. It all comes from research, you know. So it, I was reading a book about what it would have been like. So. I mean, you know, these plays would have, were performed in competition. So there were three playwrights competing. They each had a day in which to perform their tetralogies. And there would have been a sacrifice uh, to open the festival in Athens, which would have probably been a bull or a goat or something. I mean, the word tragedy, by the way, means song of the goat. That's the <laughs> derivation of the word I tragedy. Didn't know that. Not many people do, but it's the song of the goat. You're kidding me. I'm not kidding you. I'm really not kidding you. And it's to do with um, Dionysus and dressing up in goat skins and impersonating the goat, but also probably to do with the, the sacrifice of the goat or the, the animal. Now, you can't do that, but they often talk about libations. And, you know, you, you research what a libation is. You have to take something that is precious and offer it up to the gods. And actually, I wanted to do whiskey, but... Um, David Craig said that whiskey would be that, that people in Scotland would find that just too much. <laughs> like, what a waste of a good whiskey! But a bottle of wine, and Dionysus is the god of wine, mm. and the festival was called the City Dionysus in in honor of Dionysus. So to pour a very nice bottle of wine, and on opening night, actually, it was a very very expensive bottle of Greek wine that David Craig bought, and to pour that to 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 watch the 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 waste. Or the offering, because it's not a waste. It's an, literally you are offering something out of our bounty to the gods. Um, it's a very important ritual. And again, it's one of those things that marks the transition from sitting in the real world and moving into the sacred space of the theatre. That little transition. It's one of the things that we are most responsible for as theatre directors is orchestrating that movement from one thing to the other. And um, so that's where that, that came from. And are there any other sort of ancient traditions from Greek theatre or other theatre traditions that you've We're burning incense. We burnt incense, which was the incense that is traditionally used for Zeus because that play is um, largely a a hymn in honour of Zeus. So there was a lot of... So we we burnt that particular incense. Um, I mean, the the MSP was in Scotland, but actually I think it should be a sponsor. I think it should be the chief executive of some big insurance company or whoever's giving money to the theatre. And I think we should make that really obvious. Rather than being embarrassed about these people, we should say, these are the pe- this mm. is the person who's actually paid for this chorus, and we should honour them. That's what the Greeks did. Mm. And I wanted also to, we're coming right back to the beginning of our conversation, to talk about the funding, to talk about the fact that our theatres are funded through taxation and that all the citizens have uh, yeah it's their theater it's 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 it you know belongs to all of us and that it's we're, we're there for you and that this is a uh, the word the Greeks have a word for it, a liturgy a liturgy a liturgy which we now think of as something else but originally meant almost like a uh, it's it's something you do in honor of your city so I suppose it could just be a, any old taxpayer that comes up to a, a it could one be. stage. And it could be. Actually, in ancient Greece, they'd say, annually, they'd say, right, you, um, I'm trying to think of a rich person, 
uh, Bernie Eccleston, right? Your job this year is to fund the chorus. So you're going to pay for the chorus because then Aeschylus had a chorus who were clothed, fed for nine months so that he could create this thing. It took a really long time for him to create four plays, choreograph it, costume it, you know, the whole thing. And so there would be on the opening night, a statue would be built of Bernie Eccleston. He was called the Corrigos and he would be properly honoured for funding the chorus. And that was his duty for the year. That was his taxes done for the year. And I think that's rather wonderful, actually, that you, you know, it's a big, it was a big honour to be asked to do that. You had to be a very wealthy person, but you were also recognised as such. And yeah, I like that. So is that something that um, ATC Productions, which are directed by you, will, will do in future to sort of shout out more about subsidy and how, and how theatre is made? Well, I think it's important because, you know, we live in times where these things cannot be taken for granted. And um, it's good to bring it into focus and to show the utility of it as well. And show the utility not just by saying, well, look, here's this show, but actually there was a little workshop that we did with some young people over there and they really loved it but to actually find ways of plumbing it into the core of the experience. Um, well, certainly I can do, I'm not saying all shows should be done the way we do the Supplement Women or the events, but I think those two shows um, make the argument for uh, participation and inclusion as the central part of the theatre activity. I suppose even the cup of tea and the biscuit at the beginning of Living With The Lights On fits into that general Totally narrative. does, totally, yeah. totally does, yes. Fantastic. So we've kind of heard what's next for you with the, the, the Greek trilogy. Is that is that you or is that um, Actors Touring Company? That's ATC. That's ATC. Act, yeah, that's ATC. But we're open to offers. You know, if anyone's listening to this, um, they could just ring up the office. And yeah, I'm really looking for a theatre, an enlightened theatre to co-produce with. Anything else exciting coming, coming up, up. For you, Roman? Yeah. There are some things, but maybe I won't go into them now. <laughs> okay. Maybe I won't go into them now. Well, in which case, with uh, Living With The Lights On, which is at the Young Vic until the 27th of December, to the 23rd of December. 23rd of December. Book your tickets. December. Book your tickets. I've seen it. I saw it when it was on here last time. Yep. I found it really um, powerful and raw and fascinating to hear Mark's story. Yes. Um, and fascinating to watch Suppliant Women when I saw it in Edinburgh, and I hope it has a future life as well. Great. And, um, Roman, thank you very much for coming to chat this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.